The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Brother John, why don't you come up? And uh, um, Brother John and I have known each other for a few years. He hasn't aged a bit. I've aged a little bit more. He's always had the same uh, muscular build as he were, as it is. I know Teresa's laughing back there, but it's okay. Uh, it's all right. But I will tell you this, is that uh, my brother and I met back in 2006 or 2007. I don't even remember. It's been that long ago and kept up. And he's been a member of our church now for just about a little over six years. I looked it up. It was the end of October of 2015, six years ago. John is one of our Sunday school teachers here. And uh, part of the reason I've asked him to come and preach, well, my wife is gone. And I've got to thank you, Chris, for helping them over here and helping them stay calm during the prayer. I, I saw the littlest one. I know. The ever seeing pasteurized, right? But also because it's good for you to hear a voice, not our own. And so as we go forward as a church, probably I am eight to ten times a year, you're going to have someone else other than myself preaching. Pastor Nelson will take most of that, but we'll have other folks. It is cool that as a church, we can go into, in baseball terms, go into seven, eighth, ninth batting order, and then some on the bench of people who can get up here and preach. Amen. Guys, a lot of churches don't have that. So, brother, thank you. Bring the word we need. And, uh, John, it's all yours. All right. You're thank not you. nervous at all. Not usually. No, he's not. <laughs> Love you, brother. Thank you. I don't know of a time that I've never been not nervous up here, at least in the beginning. So it really does. Um, I think some of that's probably healthy. <clears throat> Pastor Darren knows this, of uh, just the impact that God's word can have on us and just the, the gravity of what we're we're here for this morning. Um, so yeah, I just want to say welcome and uh, thank you for all being here. And I also just want to thank Pastor Darren for the opportunity um, uh, to preach this morning. If you would, uh, uh, this text we're going to be looking at is Philippians 4, as we've already mentioned. And uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 4 through 14 this morning. And it is uh, uh, the, the, the source of the Christian's contentment. Um, I recently posted a question on social media and, and here's the question I asked. I said, what scripture in the Bible seems the most impossible or the most difficult to, to observe? And not surprisingly, the replies I got are, are some of the same scriptures that I struggle with myself a lot of times. And, and those are the scriptures that speaks to some of our greatest desires, desires for, for peace, uh, the desire to be contented, the desire to be anxious for, for nothing. And I think these are some of the most difficult to observe because they speak primarily to our emotions. And the emotions is something that, as you know, is we seem to have the least control over it at, at times. Uh, we seem to have more control over our doing um, than our feelings. And I think that's what makes it so difficult. For example, the command to steal or command not to steal, that's, that's a fairly easy one. You just don't be a thief or the command not to, to lie. That's an easy one. You just don't be a liar. But when you tell me not to be anxious for anything, let me just be honest with you, that, that command alone brings a lot of anxiety to me personally. Okay? You see, I can control my hands not to steal. I can control my, 
my tongue not to lie. I can make conscious decisions to obey or disobey. But have you ever commanded your mind not to be anxious for nothing? Have you ever tried that? It doesn't work. It just makes you more anxious. Not only does the original anxious thought remain, but now you're anxious because you're anxious, which just compounds everything. And here's the unfortunate part. This, this cycle begins a cycle of discouragement and typically leads us in one of, of two uh, areas. First of all, we believe that there's no hope. In other words, there's no hope of ever being able to obey this command, if you, if you would. We pl- so we place it in the realm of the impossible. Somewhere in our mind, we just say, okay, that's, we know what the scripture says, but we've never experienced victory in, in that area, so it must not be possible, and we just accept it. We accept it, say, that's just the way my life is, and it's a normal part of who I am, and that's just the way it's going to be. Or the second thing we do, we try to avoid any and all circumstances that may cause us anxiety. It's one of those two things. We either put it in our brain and say, well, that's just the way we are, or we try to avoid any of the circumstances or the hardships, or you could say difficulties, in life that we know will bring us anxiety. And that's actually living in fear. That's what that causes us to do. It causes us to live in fear, which is the opposite of faith. But Paul's going to give us another option. You see, we don't have to look at the future with doom and gloom. In fact, God has designed the Christian to shine the brightest when the doom and gloom is, seems to be the greatest. When the world seems the darkest, we are designed by our very nature to shine the brightest, to be at most peace, most content. That shines the brightest in the middle of the greatest darkness. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is possible. Scriptures are literally saturated, saturated with gospel treasures. We have to discipline ourselves to find them. We have to discipline ourselves for godliness. We have to discipline ourselves to study and to pray and these sort of things. So with that in mind, we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 4 this morning. And one of these gospel treasures that Paul is going to introduce is the treasure of contentment. And he's going to propose the idea that contentment doesn't come from our circumstances in life. but It comes as a fruit born of the gospel itself. If you were to define contentment, many of us would look at contentment as a state of peace. Um, And while peace may be a cousin of contentment, there is a little bit of of difference. Contentment is more of a state of satisfaction. It actually means being self-satisfied. And Paul wasn't talking about contentment in this autonomous. He was talking about this contentment in Christ. We're not content necessarily because our circumstances are good good or bad, but we're content because Christ is good in those circumstances. Listen to the world's philosophy on contentment, and unfortunately it becomes the philosophy that we sometimes maybe even subconsciously take. Here's, Here's what the world philosophy says. If our circumstances are good, then we should be content. But if our circumstances are bad, we should be discontent. That's typically the way we think oftentimes. You see, that creates a problem for all of us, creates a problem for humanity. Because on the one hand, we know that life is full of bad circumstances. It's just the way life is. And on the other hand, one of our greatest desires is peace and contentment. The world's philosophy says they can't coexist. Paul says they can. 
So if you would, if you'll stand with me uh, this morning, read read chapter 4 of Philippians. And uh, it's just 10 verses, starting verse 4 through 14. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then verse 11, this is the core of the scripture this morning. It says, now that I speak, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Let's pray. Lord, we just, simple prayer, Lord. We just pray in clarity, Lord, that you would show us how to discipline ourselves, to learn these lessons that Paul learned, and ultimately to um, to be content uh, alone in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, So Paul says, I have... I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So that kind of wrecks the world philosophy that says contentment and, and difficult circumstances can't coexist. Because um, if you know anything about Paul's life, uh, you know that it was uh, very, very difficult. Um, difficulty after difficulty, circumstance after circumstance is what Paul faced um, as, as a Christian. Paul knows what he's talking about. He, he's talking from experience here. He, is, he has learned that contentment is possible regardless of what's going on in his life, whatever even God allows to bring into his life. And that should encourage us this morning because when we read scriptures like this, when we, when we see that Paul learned something, it's, it's so encouraging because that lets us know the possibility that we can learn it um, as well. So the question is, is, are you content this morning? Are you content? And if so, why are you content? Is it because life is good and everything is as it should be? Let me just say, if, if that's your lot in life this morning, you have every reason to be content, every reason to be thankful. Matter of fact, Christians should be walking billboards of thankfulness and contentment when things are going well in life because of God's providence. But what happens when life isn't so good? What happens when the storms come in and wreck all of our contentment? The contentment was once there. We lose our jobs. We lose our financial security. Someone files, a spouse files for divorce, an unexpected diagnosis, or as many people have experienced even recently in our church, the loss of someone uh, that they dearly loved. These are circumstances that come in like a storm. One day things are good. The next day things could be very, very different. As Christians, we're going to experience these things because these are things common to all men regardless of your relationship with, uh, with Christ. 
Um, but on top of that, Jesus said that Christians can ex- experience even greater difficulties on top of that. On the one hand, you've got difficulties that's going to come to anyone. And then Christ comes along and says, by the way, if you follow me, because your identification in me, you can expect even greater difficulties. And Paul is the perfect example. Few, if any, outside of, of Christ himself experienced the hardships and difficulties that, that Paul did. And yet he says, I learned to be content. And think about Paul's living conditions when he, when he wrote this letter. He wasn't sipping coffee in his pastor study. He wasn't out on the back deck watching autumn leaves change color. He was in prison when he wrote this, unjustly accused and waiting for the verdict whether he would live or die, and yet he was content. Actually, using that contentment to encourage the Philippians who were worried about um, his lot in life at that moment. And understand the relationship with the Philippians, you need to go back 10 years in the book of Acts 16. That's where he first we were first introduced to this relationship. The Lord left, uh, led Paul into a region called Macedonia. The first city he went to was a city called Philippi. And you remember he had three significant encounters. One was with Lydia, the seller of purple. So he went down by the, the water, and the Lord opened her heart to his, the gospel message. Then you had the demon girl. that Paul cast out these, these demons. It made some people mad because that was their source of money, and then he was thrown into jail. And then in that jail, now if you want a picture of contentment, it says he was singing and praising God in jail. And so naturally, I'm sure the jailer and everyone else heard this, but then the earthquake comes, the walls fall, and yet they remain. And the jailer comes out and says, what must I do to be saved? And I can only imagine that it was some of Paul's testimony, his singing and praising God and that level of peace and contentment that he had that made that jailer ask that question. So that was really probably the first church or the, probably the first few members of the church in Philippi was those three people. We're not sure on the demon girl, but it's very likely that she could have been saved in all of this. And so that's the relationship that he had with these people. That's what explains the strong bond that he had between uh, himself and the church at Philippi. And so now 10 years later, Paul wants to encourage these Christians in Philippi not to worry about him because he's learned to be content. He's learned to be satisfied even in a Roman prison. One scholar describing Paul's situation said he would have been chained to a Roman guard every four hours. Can you imagine six different people? And if you'll remember that there's, in Romans he speaks about Caesar's palace and those that have become believers. And that same scholar said this wasn't a problem for Paul. This was a problem for the guard. Being chained to Paul was an unconverted sinner's worst nightmare. <laughs> so can you imagine being a Roman pagan guard coming in, checking the schedule and see that you're assigned to the apostle Paul again for four hours? But in that four hours, you can imagine the contentment and the witness and the peace of the Lord that ruled in his heart and no doubt is what made him shine in that darkness. And when he says that he, that he learned to be content, that's saying that he learned various lessons that Christ had, had taught him how to be content in all these uh, circumstances. So I just want to look at, at three of the lessons. And let's just say that you could go throughout the New Testament and you could pull out so many lessons. But I just want to look at three that's primarily we see here in, in chapter 4. The first one is that contentment comes from knowing that the Lord is near. 
I'm just going to read verses 4 through 7 again. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you'll notice, verse 4 speaks of rejoicing uh, in the Lord, and, and verse 6 speaks of being anxious for nothing. I don't think it's a coincidence that packed in the middle of those two are the words of verse 5 when it says, The Lord is near. The Lord is near. That's a lesson we need to learn. That's a lesson that Paul learned. That's a reason for his contentment. And this may seem like an obvious truth for Bible-believing Christians, but how often do we feel that the Lord isn't near? How often do we feel that perhaps the Lord has abandoned us in our most difficult days? Let me just say, this is a lie from the pits of hell. That's just, I don't know any more clear way to say it. Our our enemy, our common enemy, knows that if, if we view the Lord as a far distant, unconcerning God in our daily affairs, who can rejoice? Who, who could be content knowing that or believing that? This is a promise to be believed by faith. We know that we're not going to look at something near and see Jesus standing there. This is a, this is a promise to believe by faith, not feelings. That's one thing that Paul learned There's likely many times that Paul didn't feel the nearness of the Lord, just like there's going to be many times in our lives where we're not going to feel his nearness. But Paul learned what we all have to learn, and that's that feelings are not the foundation of truth. God's word is the foundation of truth. So I just want to look at what God's word says about the nearness of God. Of course, Lane didn't know that I was going to choose Psalms 34, so it's appropriate that... That he chose that this morning, but Psalms 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to those people. See, it's one thing to feel broken, it's another thing to feel crushed, because broken has the idea that things can be mended. I mean, we know what a broken bone is. You have a broken bone, you've got that hope that it will be mended, it can be set, that sort of thing. Being crushed in spirit's a different thing, it's going beyond brokenness. It causes people to lose hope for the the future. Perhaps we're too broken. Perhaps we're too messed up, too far gone to be uh, whole again. And that's just not true. Not if we realize that the Lord is near. Not by feeling, but by faith, by the authority of God's word. And not only is the Lord near, but he invites us to come near. It's another invitation, great invitation that we see in the scriptures. I can imagine that the words of Jesus in Matthew 11 brought Paul great comfort on some of his worst days. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Catch that, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says that we are to come to him and learn. So there's lessons that he wants to teach. There's lessons that he wants us to learn. And and in this scripture, he says, I want you to learn how gentle I am, how humble I am. And a fruit of that is going to be rest for your soul. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And when we understand that view of God, that should bring us great contentment. So the question is, have we learned this lesson in our uh, personal walk with Christ? Are we, how do we view God? Do we view God in this humble and gentle sense? 
or do we view him as we should if we weren't saved? Is, is this harsh and, and wrathful, demanding God? Because for the Christian, old things have passed away, new things have become new. And it's true that if we're living outright sin, we do face the discipline of the Lord, but it's not a harsh, demanding punishment. It's in, it's in love that God gives that to us. But he's saying, you come to me because I am gentle, I am humble. And how often do we really think of the Lord in that way? Picture the contentment of David in the Old Testament when he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. You see, we've learned a lot of things. We can learn a lot of things, probably know a lot of things about our Lord, but have we learned what a good shepherd he is? Have we really learned that lesson? Do we go to rest? Do we go to him for rest and contentment? Is he the one who refreshes our soul? Is he the source? That's the secret of contentment. If we've done that, we can rejoice knowing that he's near. The Lord is near and he is the good shepherd. The second thing, not only is the Lord near, but contentment comes from dwelling on heavenly truth, heavenly realities. Let's quickly read verse 8 again. It says, finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If you were in our small group this morning or in one of the other ones, like Pastor Darren said, Colossians 3, 2, Paul said, set your minds on things above not on the things that are on earth. And this is also a, a good discipline, um, a very practical way, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, dwelling on truth is actually a, a work of sanctification, according to Romans 12, 2. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and not conform to the, this world. It's this continually transformation that the Lord desires to make us more in the image of, of Christ. But and what I want to focus on on this particular point this morning is in addition to dwelling on heavenly reality, it also acts as a truth filter. That's what it is. It's a truth filter. The lies and deceptions of, of this world, we, we know the, 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 the multitudes of them. It's everything that comes against the knowledge in opposition to the truth of God. And the discipline of dwelling on things puts everything in perspective. It actually puts everything in in order. We're commanded to dwell on these heavenly realities because it keeps earthly realities in perspective. Because otherwise, if we don't do this, our earthly realities, and we all have them, become overwhelming. The circumstances in life. And the reason that is is because our earthly realities, the circumstances in our life that we face every day, aren't designed to bring contentment at all. Go back to Genesis where God is speaking to Adam and Eve. And you'll see that reality, the beginning of that reality. He was explaining to them their new reality. He says, Eve, you'll have children through the pain of birth. And Adam, you'll have to work the land of the toil of the sweat of your brow. That's the reality of living in a fallen world. And so Paul understood that we're still living in this chaotic mess. Uh, in the middle of all of it, he's able to rejoice because he's trained his mind to think about, to meditate, to remain steadfast on the truth and the promises of the gospel. Let me just give you one example from Paul's life and how this practice helped him to remain content, this dwelling on, on those things which are good and, and holy and 
And to be honest with you, verse 8, the only one that truly meets all of those, and there's a lot of things that could fall in that category, but Christ meets all of those. The gospel meets all of those. If you'll remember in 2 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, Paul said this, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. This was Paul's reality. But in reality, it's reality seen through the gospel. Paul wasn't denying the hardships that he had. He was seeing them in perspective of the gospel. It's true that he was hard-pressed, but he wasn't crushed. Yes, it's true that uh, he was faced persecution, but God had not abandoned them. It was true that they were struck down, but they weren't destroyed. You see, it's all about perspective. In some of our hardest days and times, we have to dwell and we have to know what God's word says about our circumstances to understand in perspective. That's one reason Paul says dwell on those things. And here's the amazing part. When Paul reflected on all these hardships, he went on to say just a few uh, scriptures later in verse 17, He described those circumstances as light and momentary, light and momentary afflictions. Let me just say again, if you go back and I I did just a quick search and I found one uh, document that had 12 pages of just Paul's suffering, just 12 pages. And sometimes I think, you know, what suffering or what circumstances is the the cause of Christ brought on us, perhaps we could write them on a post-it note. And yet Paul had 12 pages, just scripture after scripture. And he's taken some of the most horrific circumstances here and he's reduced them to what seemed like a, a minor thing. A, a stub toe is, is how he would look at that. It's just light. It's momentary. It's not that bad. It won't last forever. So how could Paul call these things light and momentary? Paul wasn't a madman. He was not a crazy man. He suffered greatly under these hardships. He knew what hardships and, and, um, and suffering was. But when Paul practiced verse 8, when he dwelled on these heavenly realities, it was Christ and his sufferings. When he thought about what Christ had done and when he thought what Christ had delivered him from and when he thought about and dwelled on what he deserved, that made his worst afflictions seem as nothing. That's the point Paul is, is making here. Um, and discontentment, it caused him rejoicing, it caused him great thanksgiving, and that's the point that he's making. Discontentment cannot live in the same heart as thanksgiving and rejoicing. It just can't cohabit the same heart. So here's the question. This is the application for us as a church. What do we dwell on on a consistent basis? Not necessarily sporadic thoughts that, that come to mind throughout the day, but as a conscious, deliberate decision What do we choose to dwell on? Each of us is given 24 hours a day. We know that sleep takes a third of that time. And there's many good and legitimate things to think about. We talked about that this morning in in our class, that there are things pertaining to life and to work and to our families. But how much time do we actually choose to dwell on the Word of God, on uh, the realities of heaven? What Paul, even many times, the joy set before him, he contemplated even what heaven would be like. That's what helped him be the the Christian he was here on earth. 
There's no other way to really learn what Paul learned unless we discipline ourselves. It's a deliberate choice. There has to be a deliberate, conscious decision to turn off the TV, to turn off Facebook, to turn off the news, and transfer that energy, transfer that time to pursuing gospel truth. It's not always easy, but it's essential. And we may not have control over all the random thoughts of our, our mind, but we can saturate our mind with gospel truth. And that's going to make it much harder for this fear, this anxiety to commandeer the mind, especially a mind that's fixed on Christ. That's the point Paul is making. So first lesson, contentment comes from knowing that the Lord is near. Contentment comes from dwelling on heavenly realities. And the last one is contentment comes from learning that Christ is sufficient. As Christians, we know something can be true, but we don't always experience that truth. I think we could all, we could all say that in our daily lives. We know that Christ, from an intellectual standpoint, we know that Christ is sufficient. But we don't always experience that sufficiency. You've heard the term, you have to live it to know it. You have to walk in somebody's shoes. That's really what is going on here. It's through our circumstances. And whether, however you want to put those, frame that is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, what he allows to come into our lives, those circumstances, those difficulties, both good and bad. It's God himself that orchestrates these things. It's the God-ordained means of teaching us not only the sufficiency of Christ, but the insufficiency of everything else but Christ. And that's one lesson that we have to learn. We'll never learn the sufficiency of Christ until we learn the insufficiency of everything else. And for the Christian, we live kind of between these two paradigms, our self-sufficiency and then the the Christ-sufficiency. And since we're speaking about contentment, You have to remember, this is a deep-seated state of satisfaction that that is God-given and it's a desire only he can satisfy. Anything else is insufficient. Our money, our career, our homes, vacation after vacation, fame, fortune, it's all insufficient as a means to peace and contentment. Like trying to hammer a square peg in a round hole, it just doesn't work. It wasn't designed to work, yet we keep insanely keep hammering sometimes that same thing, trying to find peace and contentment in all of these things that the world has to offer. Paul says, I've learned a better way. Verse 10 again says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This scripture alone, it's evident that circumstances had nothing to do with Paul's contentment. He's even saying that even in plenty, I've learned to be content. You know, a lot of times we think if we could just have this or we could get this status or this amount of money, Paul is saying that's sometimes the worst temptation for the Christian. That's probably the time that we need to, to flee to Christ the most is when sometimes when we're being blessed materially or uh, in, in those manners because those things just breed more discontent. Just bring, But he says even in whether plenty or, or much, hungry, or, it doesn't matter. He says, I've learned the secret 
to contentment. And he frames it in the manner that, again, that it's something that, that had to be learned. It's something that he once didn't know. It was something that Christ had taught him. And again, starting from the base foundation here, that should bring us great encouragement. Because we may be here this morning thinking, well, you know, you know, I pray. And there's times where the Lord will bring instant peace, instant contentment. I think in, in prayer, be anxious for nothing. You can go to him and you'll just sense that, uh, that peace and the contentment. And it says that his peace is like a guard. It's almost like a, it's a military language that sets, its, sets up a, around the heart and the mind. And it guards us against all these things that are coming in, bombarding us, trying to steal that, that peace and contentment. But what Paul is saying here, you may have times where you have instant relief and instant peace and those sort of things in the presence of the Lord. But he's saying, this is, he's talking about a life of discipline. He's talking about a life of discipleship. He's talking about a, a life that constantly pursues Christ in obedience and, and meditating, learning about his word. And, and this, again, is, is so encouraging to me because it tells me that Paul was a work in progress. Paul didn't just wake up one morning and find himself in this utopic sense of, of contentment. Listen to what he says about one of the most difficult days as an apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 28 29. He says, in part from other things, there is this daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Notice the confessions of Paul here. Anxiety, weaknesses, and sin. Now, the question is, is is that a contradiction to what we just read? To Paul's exhortation to be anxious for nothing, that he's... Learn to be content. Well, you can't know peace and contentment unless you know the fear and anxiety, the opposite of it. And what Paul is doing here, he's describing the realities of his life. He's describing the realities of our life. He's saying it's difficult. It's in these circumstances he's making the confession. And and get this, this is what he's saying in a nutshell. He's saying, I'm totally insufficient to live the Christian life. And that's an important uh, point to understand because it's the secret to his contentment. If you look in Romans 7, he was talking about the law of, 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 of God and the, the, the sin nature and all these things that was going on. He says it was a war raging in his mind. He says to the point that he felt wretched. And that's where many Christians stop. That's where they decide, okay, it's, it's, it's not possible or I'm going to avoid anything that's going to make me feel this way. But then, fortunately, Paul went on to say, thanks be to God. Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God. So this isn't a contradiction of Paul's exhortation. Uh, He's just describing the reality. He's saying, I'm totally insufficient to live the Christian life. I'm totally insufficient in my mind in that I have anxiety. I'm totally insufficient in my heart that I inwardly burn. I'm totally insufficient in my body that I still sin. And until we learn that we have nothing to bring to God, that we're totally insufficient in our mind and our hearts and our body, we'll not experience this contentment that Paul spoke about in Philippians. Again, when he says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, he's not claiming that he never had an anxious thought or he never um, had a sinful desire. In fact, the more he grew spiritually, the more he became aware of his insufficiencies. 
the more he became aware that nothing good dwelled within him, in his flesh, that is. And accepting these realities is what drove him from trying to rely on the law, in other words, trying to be good and, and get everything in order to be appeasing to, a, uh, to an angry God, perhaps, in his mind. He learned to just surrender these things to Christ himself. It drove Paul to the mercy seat of Christ. And it's in these circumstances in, in life that ultimately taught Paul to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And let me just say that that verse right there, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is probably one of the more out-of-context scriptures that, um, that you'll see today. A lot of times people will use that as a, as a verse of triumph. In other words, that... Um, regardless of how you've studied on a test, that I can make an A on this test through Christ who strengthens me. It's not what Paul was saying at all. Paul is saying, and perhaps it's better to understand this, when he says, I can endure all things. I can do hardships. I can do poverty. I can, he says, I can face all these circumstances with contentment, with peace, because Christ is my life. I can endure these hardships because of Christ who strengthens me. And, and that's my hope this morning for, for myself and all of you that, that I can do and, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so may we leave here this morning, first of all, knowing that the Lord is near. And not only is he near, but for the Christian, there's no condemnation. He is a, he is a good shepherd. And when you see that, that picture of, of, of be anxious for nothing, it's, it's the, the ideal state that God has for us. It's like a father telling his, his, his son or his daughter, don't be anxious, but come in and share your heart with me, and I will give you peace. So the way we view God, you'll either see that scripture as a heart uh, demanding thing, like come in here and confess your sin, or you'll see, see the Lord is saying, no, come in, share your heart with me, because I want to exchange your anxiety with my peace. So know that the Lord is near. Commit ourselves to taking our anxieties Lord, in prayer, learn to dwell as a discipline, a conscious, deliberate choice to dwell on his eternal truths and ultimately surrender ourselves to the well-keeping care of Jesus Christ. May he be our strength and contentment today and forevermore. God bless you. Thank you, brother. As we come to this time of closing, I just want to invite you to stand up with us as we close out in song. John, thank you. And John, to be honest with you, I was thinking about something contentment-wise, what you said, and it's something I struggle with too, that um, if people would just think like me, act like me, talk like me, it'll eat you alive in this day and age. Vote like me, eat like me, do what me does. Sometimes our selfishness can become our greatest discontentment because we want people to be like us when we're called to be like Christ. Let's pray. And after we pray, our worship team is going to lead us in our last song. Brother, thank you for the message. And church, we're going to pray too that our church is content in a day and an age where everyone seems to be growing wider and deeper. May we be content with who we are in Christ. Let's pray and we'll sing our last song and be dismissed. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for taking care of us. Father, I thank you for John's clear message that wherever we are, no matter who we are, what we're going through, 
that if you truly are our greatest hope and our greatest desire, then we will have all that we need. Father, those aren't high platitude words. Those aren't just things we see on some bumper sticker. Lord, it's it's gospel truth. So, Father, help us. And, and the phrase he just said, that we are insufficient to live this Christian life apart from your grace. Father, remind us of that. Father, forgive us of the times when we try to do things in our own strength or overcome things in our own um, wisdom or whatever it is. Lord, we are so grateful that uh, Paul reminds us, Lord, just how it is to hold on to you. So, Father, help us to know that you're near. Help us to filter and meditate on the truths of the gospel and help us to truly, Lord, find contentment in who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. Father, that was the clear message of today. Thank you so much. Lord, as we sing this last song, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he died, buried, and rose again. Pray all this today in his name, in Jesus' name.